1: Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about
0: what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something
1: meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And this is the Soulful MBA Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. We love audiobooks and we suspect that you do too. Because you're a Soulful MBA listener, you can get an audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial over at audibletrial.com slash soulfulmba.
0: Again, that's audibletrial.com slash soulfulmba for your free audiobook. Welcome to the Soulful MBA podcast, episode 132. Today, Jenny and I had the great pleasure of interviewing feminist marketing consultant and writer Kelly Deals. This interview is part of our Women in Money series. I was first introduced to Kelly one night about two years ago when I got an urgent Slack message from Jenny who said, you need to check out this website right now. And of course, it was Kelly's website. We stayed up late that night reading through every blog post together and couldn't consume it fast enough. We fell in love with her body of work because it was the exact dose of feminism mixed with internet business that we needed at the time. But we were particularly struck by her recent essays on women and wealth and her personal story, which she shares in this interview, about how she has arrived at her new belief that money is material safety. Kelly helps feminist entrepreneurs and culture makers sell to women without selling out. In her one on one and classroom work, she teaches people how to build their feminist principles into their marketing practices and grow their businesses without feeling forced to perform a privilege-based character she calls the Female Lifestyle Empowerment Brand. Kelly lives in Chilliwack, British Columbia, and is the mother to five children. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to Kelly Deals. All right. Welcome, everyone, and a special welcome to Kelly Deals to the podcast. Welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: No, I'm happier. I'm way happier. We have tried to get this to happen for a long time and it finally has. And we've decided to do this Women in Money series. And so I think the delay is perfect because this is like the you are the perfect person for us to talk to about this situation. So we want to explore your relationship with money, Kelly. You have done so much work like as far as writing in this area and work on yourself in your business. So can you just maybe start with telling us as a young child, a little girl, what was your family's relationship with money?
2: I think as a young child, I didn't worry or think about money. I might have had this sense that there was never quite enough, but I was a bit of a bookworm. So as long as I had books, you know, I didn't really want <laughs> Much else. So if I was in a corner with some books, like I wasn't worried about can we go to the roller coaster or any of those things. Like I just wanted books. So me and my library card, we were buddies. I definitely felt later in my teen years like I didn't have as much as other people and it became a bit of a source of shame for me. Yeah, I think that's the relationship with money. I can also say that my parents who you know were lower middle class and probably the first in their generation in their family lineages to be out of poverty. They were amazing with money. They were amazing at saving money, at playing the long game, putting money away. Like they were really amazing and they were really amazing about prioritizing and like something that was important to them was vacationing and traveling and making memories with us kids. So we did a lot of camping, a lot of road trips, things like that. But I think because of that, I have this idea that in our culture, we think that people who don't have a lot of money are bad with money and aren't making good choices with money. But I can see from my parents' experience and even from the impoverished generations before them that actually they were brilliant with money. They just didn't have enough. It wasn't that they were making bad choices with it. It wasn't that they were ingenious with it. They absolutely were brilliant and ingenious with making a dollar stretch. So I just want to sort of turn over that narrative that people who are poor or lower middle class or working poor are bad with money. They're not. They're usually ingenious with it.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. that. I remember reading when you wrote that. I remember reading that. And I had to stop and pause and think, I absolutely think that. And it's Terrible to admit, but I, I, you know, I'm sure there's others listening who are like, oh, yeah, I, I think that is hard. And what about women? What you work a lot with, in your work, you, you do a lot of work with women entrepreneurs and marketing and, and feminist messaging and so on. What do you see play out in women business owners?
2: So I see a lot of shame because business owners will come to me and often they might not have revenues that match what their reputations are. So they might have really huge social media following followings. They might look like they've got a lot of connections and do, and they have some personal shame because they're not making what other people think that they are making or what they think they should be making. And often they're, in the grip of all the narratives that are encouraging us to scale, but they haven't even stabilized the revenues. And I just feel like there's no narratives out there about how to stabilize your revenue and how important in the early years of entrepreneurship stabilization is. Like we shouldn't even be thinking about scale until we get to stabilization. And we need more advice and structures and support around how to stabilize. (laughs) I mean, and the other thing I see too, so I worked recently with CEO, which is, I know both of you know, CEO, which is an organization that people, women invest in that amasses that money and then reinvests it in game changing, system changing businesses that are led by women and funds them with capital. So what I see in that and what is absolutely true Research verifies this. Women entrepreneurs are intensely capital resource efficient and get to profitability faster than any other business. And so there's this idea that women are risk averse or they're not good entrepreneurs or they need all this extra training. In fact, we get to profitability faster and we're way more capital resource efficient. So again, the narrative about women not being good with money is not true. We're great with it. We can make it go with and what wrap we up have around the block. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, what kind of, can you give us some examples of, of maybe if there's companies in who are in CEO that use like the mistakes that people are making? You had said that there was people in with CEO that were making mistakes with like the way that they used capital.
2: Oh, I no, not I, I don't think. Organizations within Shio are making mistakes with the way they use capital. I'm saying women use capital brilliantly. They're way more capital efficient, like better with capital than like male led organizations. I think what I see in my personal experience with my friends, my colleagues and my clients is that we are hesitant sometimes To make sure that the numbers work, we're hesitant to ask for amounts of money because we think like it's too much to ask. And often the people I work with are doing work that is in like emotional areas or in self-development areas. And the idea is like when women labor in that way around emotional or self-development things, like that's what we do. Like that, that isn't things that we compensate women for. And so, like, I feel like there's all this conditioning we have to overturn that says that all the things we do to caretake and grow other people, whether that's in a therapy or coaching or self-development or teaching role, isn't valuable. Like, those are actually the most essential skills that any culture has. And they absolutely should be compensating their wise women.
0: But we don't make money doing that. You can't can't be... You can't make money if you're in the health and wellness field. That's what the belief is. Yeah,
2: that is the belief or that you should be doing it for free because our culture needs it. And what I think about that, I was just having a conversation this morning with with a client about this. We are downloading our collective responsibilities as communities and organizations and governments onto the individual shoulders of women. So like we don't have social safety nets that are abundant and, and well resourced and who picks up the gap women do. When school boards don't fund schools adequately, who picks up the gap? Mothers do. They, they fundraise, they volunteer, they fill in the gaps. So there's this idea that like women's uncompensated labor, which makes the world go round, you know, is owed to other people. We shouldn't ask to be paid for it. So then a therapist or a coach or a healer or a yoga teacher feels uncomfortable asking to be compensated. And at the rate that we'll actually like Sustain her. And sustain her doesn't just to me mean like breaking even. Sustain her means taking care of her future as well, making sure that when she's 90 and can no longer teach yoga, that she still can eat.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have the model in software, which I know you, you've worked in, soft, in the software space before, which is like free trial based and, and user acquisition based because it's all being driven by venture capital and angel investors and so we get asked i would say definitely on a weekly basis if not a daily basis if we have a free trial people message us and we always say no because we provide real human support from day 1 and there's a cost to that like there's a cost to sandy and i and our team members to actually be putting in the time and answering those questions and that's a real concrete cost that's our um our humanity <laughs> you know like those are times that's those are hours i'm not you know, reading books to my child or whatever. So, and I think it's such in our industry, it's such a stark contrast to say like, no, you know, we're not just focused on getting as many users as possible, as cheaply as possible. Like we really provide from the moment someone signs up, we provide a very human experience in the technology space. And so I see that play out. Like that's what we do because that's what we feel like we need to do to serve our people is to be human to them and not just be a bot. But yet there's this expectation that there's not a cost involved with that.
2: Right, and I actually think that's like one of the challenges that we as entrepreneurs need to start like more explicitly languaging around. So like, for example, a lot of the people that you you and I serve are people who are solo practitioners who do like, who have years and years of wisdom and knowledge and training built up in their bodies. And then people say like, can I pick your brain? for something that they professionally serve. And lots of my clients will come to me and they're totally exhausted because everybody in their world is picking their brain and they are struggling to make rent. And I will often say, so you know what you do on your website, put up a session called pick my brain and charge $200 for it. And so when someone says, can I pick your brain? You say, yes, you can. And here's the link.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. And I think you know, back to Jenny's point about people asking, like, we'll get these emails about using our software. Like, I'm not ready to start yet, but can I just use your software for free until I'm ready to actually start taking a sale? And it's so insulting to me that they want to use the software. And it's exactly the situation you're just describing for free until they're ready. Like, I'm going to fund you, you know, until you're ready. And it seems to be only women who make that request. And I think we, I learned this from you and your writing is like, you will only pay full price for your whatever labor you need to hire or service or product or whatever. And in exchange, you expect to be paid. And I think... We kind of instituted that and said, like, I think we had that on on Instagram. Like, true friends don't ask friends for free or discounts; they pull for like true friends pay full price. And so we have really adopted that because I think it's the right way to to operate. Like, that's how you do it. Well, like, there's you need a real like, when we're not me.
1: playing with pretend VC money. Every upload has a real cost to us. Like every call to the server. Like every. Everything we do costs us money, like everything our tool does, even though it's a software and it's sort of like mysteriously operating in the cloud, <laughs> in the ether, like there are real hard costs, like there's real energy being used to power the servers and like there's there's a cost to everything, right? And we're so used to in our culture externalizing costs, whether it's onto people or places or... Other creatures or whatever that that's just taken for granted, and so it really requires a shift in how we think about business, how we operate, and then we have to educate the people we work with and the people we serve constantly about this. And I think then then we'll start to see something shift.
2: Well, I'm going to make an an analogy here to to fast fashion, for example. Mm -hmm. So when I go buy a t shirt at H and M that is twenty dollars. There's like an environmental cost to that there is some woman or some child or maybe not child maybe i'm like alleging things but no like, i think it's really i think there. it's really a child <laughs> <laughs> there is someone somewhere who was mm-hmm. vastly underpaid working in bad circumstances Mm -hmm. to make that t-shirt. Then there was all these shipping costs and who knows how that cotton was bleached and the environmental cost to that. There is a cost to fast fashion. So how do I want to use my resources? Do I want to buy one amazing shirt that lasts for six years or do I want to buy six crappy things that have a a total environmental cost and were made in inhumane circumstances? So Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be really mindful about the way that I consume. So I'm actually trying to use fewer apps and use like I don't need more crap I don't need more services and software I want to use my business dollars to support the kinds of companies that I want to see in the world so I want to use Namastream for example and because it's founded by two feminist entrepreneurs and I'm happy to pay full price for it but I'm not going to buy six other like half-assed crappy things with trials <laughs> I'm going to buy one thing and I'm going to focus on it. So I'm like, I'm just trying to be really intentional about what I'm consuming, who I'm buying from. And anytime I have to make a purchase in my business, I'm trying to make sure I'm buying it from feminist entrepreneurs or companies that are founded by people of color and especially like black women and Latina women and and women of color. Because again, if we look at like the fake money for VC, 0.006% of VC money goes to black women founders 0.32% of that goes to the Latina women founders, the money the, that VC money doesn't go. So VC money is not founding tech startups by women. So I am specifically, when I go to buy an app, I'm looking to buy, you know, apps and software and services from feminist led businesses. So like every, like you said, everything has a cost. And we can be really intentional about how we're using our money. I want to invest in my community and I want to invest in the things that I want to grow. So the resources I have, that's how I'm trying to make them like do double duty.
1: This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is an easy to use platform that helps you build and sell your own courses, memberships, and live stream programs. Go from idea to open for business in just minutes. You can learn more at namastream.com.
0: So I would really love to hear some discussion from you about how you currently run your business. And I know recently you made some decisions about how you're going to show up as an entrepreneur and operate in the world around money and things like you're not going to use volunteers, you're going to pay full price. Can you just talk a little bit about how, you know, how that came to be?
2: Sure. I mean, that's a bit of a, a personal story and my and I'll tell you it. And my business model changes every couple of years, as I think most people's business models do when we hit new stages or needs in our lives or new stages in our businesses. Every time you hit a new stage in your business, your model shifts a bit. Anyways, all that to say in late 2016, my brother in law, who lives in Trinidad, had a stroke. And he was the caregiver for my elderly mother in law, who was in her early 80s at the time. And she had Alzheimer's and she had gone blind. And he was the caregiver for her. So he had a stroke. So it was a serious emergency situation. And my husband actually took a leave of absence and went to Trinidad to be her caregiver. And he originally went thinking that it was just gonna be for a couple of weeks or a couple of months until things stabilized and he had things sorted out and there were other family members, et cetera, et cetera. When he got there, he discovered an absolutely horrifying situation. He discovered that his mom had been neglected, that she was being left alone for 16 hours at a time, being blind and having Alzheimer's, was undernourished, had sores on her body, and that, like, nobody in the family was really t- stepping up. And a family member had looted her bank account, taken all of her money, and put all of her properties. Um, she had two lots and a house. Uh, that she had inherited, that, you know, the family had held for generations, had put all of her property in their name. And so she literally had no resources. And all of her life, she had taken care of other people. She had taken care of her parents who had Alzheimer's at the same time as she was raising an infant granddaughter. She had raised her children. She had raised, like, extended family members. She had literally taken care of everyone her entire life. She'd periodically had jobs but never really had, like, any kind of stable, solid income, but she had always taken care of every single generation of of the family. She was known in the village as being like just, you know, the love and support and like the rock and everyone loved her. And here in her elder years, she was being exploited, she was being preyed upon, she was being neglected. And her, like these, like she did not deserve that. This was her turn, like in a really like just society and a healthy family this would have been the time where she was cared for. She had cared for people her whole life and now she had no resources and even her pension was being stolen. Like it was just appalling what was going on. And so my husband got there and was like, called me up and like, babe, like I don't think I can come home. Like it's not safe to leave her. And you know, like this isn't, she has no resources. And we literally changed everything. So that was late 2016. I put the house up for sale, and two months later, the entire family was in Trinidad. I picked up the kids. We went to Trinidad, and like what that underlined for me when I got there is that it wasn't just her. There was other family members who were elderly women who had literally taken care of everyone in our life. One of them was a nun. Every like had taken care of everybody always, being exploited, being preyed upon, and being neglected. And I just looked at this, and I'm like, this is what happens to women when they don't have resources this is just what happens to women right they get exploited and preyed upon and they in a healthy community they would be cared for in their elder years but they're not being and like there's not a rich social safety net to take care of them in trinidad or even arguably in canada in the united states and like they are in danger they are suffering and you know, at the same time, there were women on my side of the family who were going through similar things, who were being exploited by family members. And I was just like, this financial abuse, this emotional abuse, this actual physical neglect, like, I cannot rely (laughs) on family members. You think you can, but in fact, there's no guarantee that you can. Like, this cannot be my future. And it was just like, I was thrown into gear because here we were, you know, taking financial responsibility for my mother-in-law and trying to make things right, um, changing our lives around to be her caregiver. My my husband ended up quitting his job—not just taking a leave of absence, but quitting his job to be her primary caregiver. And it was just like enormously difficult. And I just looked at this. I'm like, I have to change everything. It's not just okay for me to be making enough to meet like my monthly expenses. I need to be saving for retirement. I need to make sure that I can take care of my extended family members because now we have like more responsibilities. It's not just that we have to take care of our children and make sure our children are fed. Like we got to make sure that we can pay for her medication and the care aid and all the things that we need to do. So I just realized like I need to step up the game here. And I it changed the way I looked at my business. I looked at my business like it's not enough for me to just get by and pay my taxes. I need to build something here. And it also changed the way I looked at the people I was hiring. I was like, my goal here is to make sure that anyone I'm hiring, whether it's a contractor or a full-time employee, that I'm paying them in like an abundant living wage. A living wage is the minimum. You know, and I did research, like, what is a living wage? And, like, in most places, it's, like, $31 an hour. And so much business advice is about, like, you know, like, outsource this, outsource that, pay $11 an hour. And, like, this is not right. Like, we, if we have feminist principles, we need to making sure we're paying the people in our businesses so that they can live. And so that meant I had to change my rates. It meant I had to change the amount of time that I was working, I had to be more realistic. So up until that point, I'd be working with, let's say, 20, 25 clients a week, like coaching for 25 hours a week and then wondering why I didn't have any time to do anything and and why I was working on Saturdays and working on Sundays. And if you're coaching 25 hours a week and then teaching three times a week, you rapidly get to a place of like, you're working 60 hours a week because you still have to do your marketing, you still have to do your admin, all of those things. So I just changed how I thought about everything. And I started realizing like every hour, every working hour is not a billable hour, which means instead of working 40 hours at $200 an hour, for example, you need to budget for billing 20 hours (laughs) and you need to double your rates. And so like, and I just went through like, what do I need to earn? How much do I need to bill? in order to pay a team of three people, in order to pay my taxes. What are my actual operating expenses? And then I need to add 30% onto that because I've got to pay taxes. And then I've got to add um, 30% on top of that because I need a profit. (laughs) So like I basically had to like triple or quadruple my rates over the next several months. So like, that's what I want us to do is like really think about what are our principles and how do we want to live? How do we want the people in our world to live? And then price for that, not price for getting by.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then what about credit? How do you feel about using credit to build a business?
2: I think it's actually really, really important to use credit to build a business. And that was actually something that I've been looking at is how do women raise capital? So we talked about like the, the fake VC <laughs> bubble and, and what that does. It's so I think damaging to businesses, frankly. And who can get it in the first place is usually not going to be women in the first place because I told you those really damaging numbers for women of color. For women as a whole, as a category, 2.2% of VC funding goes to women-led businesses. So like, that's just not going to happen. I forget what the rates are about business loans going to women, but they're really minimal. It's I'm not even going to throw a number out, but anyways, we have to think about how to raise capital because one of the problems I see is when women are underfunded and undercapitalized, which is definitely the problem that puts us into a lot of business model problems as well. So for example, I see in the coaching world, many coaching programs teach women that they should add a 25% fee minimum onto payment plans. So, if someone can't pay in full for the coaching program, you should charge them an extra twenty-five percent for accessing a payment plan. And I look at that and I think there's two things going on. One, that is massively exploitative to charge such an like such a high fee for accessing a payment plan, higher than my credit card interest, for example. And that's exploitative. And you're downloading, you're creating an additional revenue stream from the people least able to pay in the first place, and that's just predatory. So that's one problem. But the other reason that women do it, though, women owners do that is because they're undercapitalized and they need some upfront money. So they're trying to build an incentive into people paying in full. And so if women actually had access to working capital, they might not have to use those practices in the first place. So, like, I want us to be adequately funded. So I think it's important to have access to working capital. And I just did some research this week about, like, what are some innovative or unusual or unheard of ways to access working capital? If you're launching a program and you need some upfront money so that you can pay your copywriter a living wage instead of having an unpaid woman working for you for exposure, like, how do you do that? And so, like, there's two things that I just discovered. One is that PayPal in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia has a working capital fund. So, like, you can actually borrow money from PayPal based on your future earnings, and you pay it back off of your future earnings, and they'll give you, I think, up to 35% of what you've earned in the last year. So, for example, if you'd earned $100,000 via PayPal in the last year, you could get up to $35,000 as a working capital advance. So that's like something I didn't know existed. Stripe has something, a trial similar happening right now. You can't actually access it off of any like websites. I think you probably have to call them or they call you and offer it to you. But there is a trial program. I think if you like use that.
1: Stripe, there's a little toggle in there.
2: Okay. And if you have I enough of that. a history
1: with them. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually played around with this. So it's expensive. The it cost 10%. Well, it depends wow. on how much. Um, you, right now, like we have three tiers available to us because I just checked this week. And the first tier, the lower amount is 7.5%. And then it goes, the middle tier is 10%. And then the top tier is 14.5%. So if you want to borrow a lot of money, it's a 14%. 0.5% interest rate plus they take 2500 of the loan once they loan it to you, they keep 2500 so it's right. Yeah, I mean they're make you know it's good business sense for them, but I I love that it does provide it's a safety net to know it's there. Yeah, it's expensive to borrow that money,
0: but it's instantly in our account if we needed something. Yeah, within twenty four right? hours it's, we just and hit no a one's button. judging us because right, of the and color they're not of our skin or credit
2: check. No, and, and no. Then there's gonna be a credit. There's a credit. There's a systemic structural credit problem mm-hmm. for women who are paid. White women are paid like. 20% less than white men, but the numbers are even more extraordinary for Latina women who I think make 54 cents on the white man's dollar and like so on and so forth. Um, like the, the numbers are egregious. So if you think about credit, if women are making 20 to 50% less than men, there's going to be a credit issue for women. Bankruptcy is a feminist issue. So like being able to access working capital without there being a credit check is actually important. That's not across the board, but I'm just like raising this issue. But having access to capital would help alleviate a lot of the problems that I write about. So I write about like the predatory practices of the female lifestyle empowerment brand. And a lot of those practices would disappear, I think, if we actually had better access to capital.
0: Do you maybe we didn't talk about that at all? The female lifestyle empowerment brand. Do you want to just maybe explain that for our listeners?
2: Sure. So, I think what there's two ways that I talk about it. There's one way that I talk about it the female lifestyle empowerment brand is this model that we have in our heads of what a successful woman and a successful businesswoman looks like. So, it's really just all our cultural ideas and our social conditioning about like what a good woman is, what a, a successful woman is, you know, and then in business. It's something that we hold up and say, like, don't you want to be like this? I can show you how to be like this. And what that is is it's white privilege. It's like a white, thin, heterosexual, able bodied woman who's wealthy and has leisure and success, you know, using that to create authority over other women. And there are marketing tactics that go with it. So there's privilege signaling, there's wealth signaling, there's shaming, there's practices like you're going to have a launch and you need copywriters and social media people and graphic designers. And instead of paying them, you bring them in as unpaid interns or they work for exposure. And then you take all of that labor and do a $1.2 million launch and teach other people how to do $1.2 million launches based on the uncompensated labor of other women and call that empowerment. So I'm very skeptical of that kind of thing. I don't think that's good for us.
0: Yeah, it's eye-opening for me to listen to you and watch you write and grow as a thinker. And I just appreciate your work so much. So what is happening in Kelly Deal's life in the next year?
2: So just to maybe three weeks ago, I signed with a literary agent. I did. So that is extremely exciting for me. So by August 30th, I'm going to finish my draft of my book. And she's going to go off into the world in the fall and hopefully sell that to a publisher. It's called We Are the Culture Makers. And it's literally about everything we need to unlearn in order to rise and reminding us of how much power we have. Like every minute we're in this world, we're culture making. So yes, we inherit an unjust culture and we can absolutely influence it. And that doesn't mean we only influence it when we have 100,000 followers. It means we influence it in the interaction we have with the teacher. Of our child. We influence it in the way we raise our children. We influence it in the way we interact at the doctor's office and what we publish on social media and who we follow on social media. In every single moment, we're culture makers. And so we can do that deliberately, right, to create the kind of change we want, which is what I'm talking about when I'm saying, what resources do we have? Can we invest them in feminist owned businesses? Who do we want to buy from? You know, who do we want to push back on? <laughs> what kind of world do we want to live in and how do we create it personally and better yet as collectives and groups? Yeah. I think
0: the overall message for me is like, we're not victims. We can stand up and change things. We can say no, like you said, push back. We can question, we can take a different action if we want. And I think it's so important for, because, you know, we all work on online so much that we do need to question every single click and just to think about it, think about every single action we take in our businesses and who it's impacting. And yeah, so I think, I think it's, thank you for all, all your knowledge and all your wisdom.
2: Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That's so lovely.
0: Okay. We are going to take you through Proust's questionnaire. Are okay, you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to just ask you questions you're going to quickly answer. So what is your ideal of perfect happiness?
2: Uh, It's probably a book on a beach.
0: What is your greatest fear?
2: I I, I mean, I really dislike fire (laughs) and spiders.
0: (laughs) Which living person do you most admire?
2: Oh my gosh, I admire so many people. I think probably consistently across time, it's Gloria Steinem and bell hooks.
0: What is your greatest extravagance?
2: Getting my nails done.
0: Which talent would you most like to have?
2: Oh, I would love to dance.
0: (laughs) What do you consider your greatest achievement?
2: I'm torn. I think my two things are, one is the feminist marketing work that I do in writing and in person. I really do see it change people's businesses and their lives. Because women having money changes everything. (laughs) And two would be, my children. Like one of the things I'm most proud of is I see my seven-year-old and three-year-old sons being emotionally literate and talking about emotionally self-regulating and being soft and being affectionate. And I see my older daughters being like, you just can't mess with them, you know, like really knowing who they are. And those things are like, I'm really proud of them. Yeah, and that
0: changes the world too, that our kids.
2: Who are your favorite writers? I'm really loving Adrian Marie Brown. I love Soraya Shamali, Linda Bacon, Gloria Steinem, Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, without a doubt. I mean, I, I could go on forever. I love writing, period. <laughs> and the last
0: question is what are you reading right now?
2: Oh, a stack of things. I just finished The Myth of Capital. I've read it a couple of times in the last couple of months by. Jonathan so Tepper and Denise Hearns, really useful, totally appropriate to the conversation we're having. I'm reading Sister Citizen by Melissa Perry Harris. What else am I reading? I constantly read Audre Lorde. I have a whole bunch of books that I just downloaded too. So I mean, I'm reading multiple books at a time.
1: Great. Thank you, Kelly. Okay, Kelly. will we end every episode with a joy and a hustle. So, if you have something specific that's bringing you joy in your life right now that you could offer up to our listeners, and also a tool that you would like to suggest to help them hustle in their businesses.
2: Okay, so there's three things that are bringing me joy. One, I have lemon oil that I'm diffusing. I love the smell of lemon. It it's just unbelievably <gasps> makes me happy. Such a small uh-huh. little thing makes me happy. Following Dante Colley, who's a dancer in Toronto. These videos that he makes are so amazing. They're like these inspirational self-help videos, but he's like dancing through them. They're just a delight. I what's love his name? so Can much. You... Dante... Dante Colley. D-O-N-T-E. And then his last name is C-O-L-L-E-Y. His videos are just like a spark of happy. And what's the third thing that makes me happy? Well, those two will do. Those two are like really making me happy. Oh, there's a mug. There's a mug that I want that I saw on Cindy Gallup's Facebook feed, And it says, it made me so happy. It says, I've got 99 problems and hetero capitalist patriarchy is all of them. That made me happy. I want That's that mug. so good.
1: <laughs> now we're going to have to track that down. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. And what about hustling?
2: So what's my tool for- For work. Because
1: work. Yeah. hustle is a complicated word.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I have so many, but right now, Um, I just built this thing where I built a form that you answer a bunch of questions that populates some Excel sheets that helps you figure out like what your break-even number is and then what your Thrive number is and what your Stretch number is so that you can be really realistic about your pricing. So this little tool that I'm building is actually giving me a lot of personal pleasure. And then I run these little scenarios like, oh, well, what if I traveled? How much money would I then <laughs> put those kinds of things mm-hmm, in? Mm-hmm. And did you, do, is there a book or that helps you
0: design that like what all those numbers are or did you, any resource that you use to figure out what those how to calculate that?
2: That just picking it up along the way from like talking mm-hmm. to okay. accountants and other business folks. So no, I yeah. don't have any one particular resource that taught me how to do that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Kelly, well thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and we're really excited to share your thinking with our community. So thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. I loved having this conversation.
0: Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five day email based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba/slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free.